Hello, readers. Coming up, it's my chat with Joe Wimpenny on Aesop's Animals. First, I wanted to remind you to check out our website at booksonpod.com. While there, you can sort through past shows by episode number, book title, author's last name, or sort by category. For instance, select the animals in nature, humor, or true crime category for episode number 180 with Mary Roach on Fuzz. This is Mary Roach. I'm the author of Fuzz, When Nature Breaks the Law, and this is Books on Pod with Trey Elling. Hello, readers. Joe Wimpenny is a zoologist and writer with a research background in animal behavior and the history of science. She's also the author behind the excellent new book, Aesop's Animals, The Science Behind the Fables. Joe, thank you for the time. How are you doing today? Very well, thank you. How are you? I'm doing very well, thank you. So what about Aesop's fables appealed to you when writing a book on the fascinating science of animal behavior? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, so my research background uh, is in crow behavior and it just so happens that the first scientific study of Aesop's fables um, was done in a member of the crow family in Rooks. So I think that probably inspired me to just start thinking a little bit more about, you know, what other animal characters might be doing things that are supported by science. Um, and that kind of set me off down the path of, of working towards Aesop's animals. Why were these fables originally created by Aesop? Oh, and we're going back a long time, like two and a half thousand years uh, and I should probably caveat this by saying Aesop may not have been a real person mm. so kind of caveat putting bearing all of that in mind um, the popular idea is that he was a slave who won his freedom by telling these witty stories um, and they were designed to kind of amuse people but also to provide moral instruction to kind of highlight human foibles um, and he used animal characters and also mythological characters as well as people in his fables um, and did so in order to sort of highlight greed uh, or the consequences of um, jealousy or, or, or any of the kind of uh, traits that we would you know would think perhaps aren't uh, optimal for, for people um, so that was kind of the point of the fables. So chapter one is on the crow and the pitcher. If anybody is unfamiliar with that fable, it just is a thirsty crow sees a pitcher with water in it, but there's so little water that he couldn't get his head all the way down into the pitcher to drink it. So he collected stones, dropping them in one by one until the water level had risen to allow him to drink. Now crows, as you're well aware, as somebody whose research background is in corvids are fascinating creatures. They have a reputation as remarkable problem solvers. And as the popular YouTube video, which you reference uh, in your book of the crowboarding crow, which is literally uh, a crow that's snowboarding down a small slope shows, they like to have fun too. But crows suffer from a negative stigma in society, Joe. When and why did this happen? I should say it's it's not uniform around the world, this kind of negative stigma. It tends to be more in uh, westernized countries. Um, and I think it goes back to things like 
the association of, of crows and ravens with death for one. Um, you know, they were always hanging around things like battlefields uh, or gallows um, because they learned that it was a great place to get an easy meal. Uh, so after something like the, the Black Death where so many people died, um, I think people came to associate crows circling around with really bad omens um, and things like that. But I think it's also important to, to recognize that they've been portrayed quite positively in other cultures and have been um, associated more with intelligence um, and with kind of light. Uh, so it's, it's more in, yeah, I would say in Europe and probably in, in America where we tend to intuitively associate these birds with death um, and bad things. Why did researcher Nathan Emery start calling corvids feathered apes in 2004? Mm. So the evidence has been accumulating about corvid behavior since probably the, the, the 80s. Um, and lots and lots of studies have been done. And by about 2004, it became apparent that members of the crow family are remarkably similar to the great apes in um, the flexibility of their behavior and in the kinds of problems that they solve um, and the ways that they do them. So Nathan Emery um, and, and other people have since you know, highlighted that there's this remarkable convergence um, in evolution for the corvid family uh, and for great apes, which are obviously separated by a really, really long um, evolutionary history. So it's kind of highlighting how they've, they've evolved very differently, but also converged upon quite um, similar situations to, to solve problems in their environments. What exactly are crow funerals and how do they enlighten us on these creatures? Crow funerals, well, this is, this is referencing work by uh, John Marsluff um, and Kaylee Swift up at, um, in Seattle. So they got interested in the observation that uh, crows tend to congregate around a dead, you know, one of their group, a, a dead animal. Um, and they seem to spend a lot of time there uh, and vocalize. And so they wanted to get an idea of what is actually going on there. Um, and Katie Swift did some fantastic experiments just sort of putting out stuffed crows, uh, taxidermied birds, um, and, and watching and, and seeing what the other birds do. Um, and it seems that it's an opportunity for the other birds to, to gather information, to, to actually learn about what might be going on. A good opportunity to, you know, if they see another animal that's dead, to try and glean some information into what might have caused it. So um, it seems that these kind of funerals are more about the other birds just getting a better sense of what's going on and whether it might reveal anything that's threatening to them. Um, although I know that Kaylee also found some quite interesting uh, observations of other birds actually mounting um, the dead birds. Uh, so it seemed to be kind of releasing a few other emotions um, <laughs> in some of the birds too. I feel like that's evidence that as smart as those creatures are and maybe trying to figure out what's going on there, uh, they also aren't fully comprehending uh, what that death means in that point in time. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a really good point to remember across all of the behaviors that, that are in the book. You know, we see such interesting similarities in some respects uh, and also 
really striking differences um, that shows that these animals, whether it's crows or chimps or whatever it is, uh, as much as they may seem to look like us, in kind of feathered or um, furred form that they're, they're not, you know, their lives are still very, very different. Um, and I think for those birds that showed sexual behavior to, to the dead birds, it was, there was some kind of internal conflict going on in, in their information processing and it brought out this kind of mating behavior. Chapter two is on the very well-known story of the wolf in sheep's clothing, where a wolf fools a shepherd into letting it spend the night with his flock by dressing up like a sheep. And in the morning, when the shepherd comes back, the entire uh, herd has been slaughtered by that wolf, of course. Ancient Greeks and Romans lauded wolves. When and why did our collective opinion of them become so muddled then? Mm, it does go back quite a long way, but you're right that... In um, ancient times, wolves were celebrated for many of their behavioral traits. Um, and of course, uh, ancient Rome, the, the story of ancient Rome is, is founded upon wolf behavior, you know, the great she-wolf. It seems that at least throughout Europe, um, people started to view animals, uh, you know, as really only having a couple of functions, um, all of them being helpful to humans or, or useful in some way. So animals might even might be livestock uh, or they might be, you know, good for sport or they might be good for um, companionship uh, and wolves and other big predators just didn't really fit in um, with this, this viewpoint. Um, and what's worse is that wolves were actively pursuing livestock um, and you know damaging people's livelihoods by taking livestock so back in you know centuries ago um, in the UK rules started to be um, passed uh, by the kings um, which put bounties on wolves heads and, and you know they would accept payment um, in the form of wolf heads uh, and from then on, basically, wolves just became persecuted to the point where there were none surviving in, in the British Isles um, throughout Europe. Uh, yeah. Popular culture has framed wolves as killers, loners, and amoral or shady characters. While they're certainly carnivorous, are wolves frequently a threat to humans, Joe? People certainly do get killed by wolves um but it's very dependent i think on where you live so in for example india and pakistan um i think it's hundreds of people in a year would would be killed by wolves and that's a function of the fact that wolf habitat has become so encroached into by um you know human activities human development and and settlements there's a lot of conflict between wolves and people uh, in, for example, the US, it's a handful of people, I think, um, you know, and, and each one a tragedy. Um, but I think given their reputation as these kind of bloodthirsty killers, you know, the problem is not as bad as that. It sort of overlaps with, has parallels with something like sharks as well. You know, the, the fear that people have for these animals is not really borne out by the truth in terms of how many people are killed by them. Our beloved dogs are obviously uh, an offshoot of the wolf. How do dogs and wolves differ cognitively? 
Yeah, um, so they show some remarkable similarities in their behavior, um, but they also show some incredible differences and, and really fascinating differences. So domesticated dogs, um, should point out, are not descended from the gray wolves that we have, you know, the modern day wolf, but both are descended from a common ancestor, which is no longer around. So there's some evidence that this common ancestor probably had some quite impressive social um, and cognitive abilities. And then that as dogs evolved differently um, and evolved alongside man and wolves evolved differently, um, these kind of abilities, ancestral abilities became channeled into their different lifestyles. So there's some lovely research that's being done that compares the behavior of um, wolf pups with dog um, pups. Uh, which are raised under identical conditions um, and you see big differences in for example the way that they work with people um, and the way that they work with other animals so for example if you set a dog um, a problem that's impossible so you know it could be just a piece of apparatus where there's food inside but actually there's no way of getting into it um, well I'll start actually with the wolf if you do that with a wolf it will just keep going at it you know we'll try every trick in the book to try and get into that apparatus they're incredibly persistent if you then give that to a dog it'll have a bit of a go at it and then it will stop and it will just look towards its owner <laughs> so you know there's a really big difference there because dogs have evolved to rely on on people and, and people also to rely on their dogs so we've got this sort of mutual partnership with with dogs whereas wolves get by by being really really persistent at trying to solve problems um so that's one of the areas where there's a, a big difference i think in their behavior but other than that you know both um show cooperative ability for wolves it's to other members of their pack uh, and for dogs it's it's to people one thing that I love about this book is not only do you tell the story and break down fascinating research that either adheres to the popular narrative that's being uh, floated by Aesop's fable, but at the end of each chapter, you say fact or fiction, whether or not this could actually happen, some way, shape, or form, it could happen. And if not, if there is a good replacement creature that might be substituted to ensure that it does happen. So is there a good replacement for the wolf in this story? That is an animal that uses deception to capture prey? Mm. So I'm, I won't give it all away uh in hopes that people will will want to buy the book and find out for themselves but yes there are better alternatives for the wolf so i should say there's no good evidence that wolves are capable of deception um that it just hasn't been found uh so from that perspective for aesop's fable it really falls down there that there's no evidence at all and of course that doesn't mean that they're not capable it might be that we've just not discovered it yet or the right experiment hasn't been designed yet that, that can find that out um, but better contenders include um, both corvids and apes so um, there's some really nice studies that have been done with yeah with members of both of those groups um, and that's really starting to get into a fascinating area of research which is about theory of mind and whether other animals can predict what another is thinking, um, what knowledge states another might have. Because of course, to deceive someone, uh, to deceive another animal, 
like for example if I wanted to, to trick you I kind of need to know what you already know and I need to know or have a, a good way of predicting what you might do in a particular situation um, and so there's a lot of active research at the moment asking whether other animals are capable of of such things or whether they they have that ability to kind of project into the mind of another. Do any animals use deception for sex other than your average dating app user? <laughs> yes, there's some, uh, some really interesting studies that have found uh, deceptive behavior. So topi antelopes are one of them. Um, so in Africa, these antelopes, uh, the males kind of hold little territories um the females only only kind of uh in estrus for i think it's only a couple of days yeah i'd have to double check but it's a really short time and so there's a huge amount of competition obviously to try and mate with these females at the time that they're in season um but what the males do rather than engaging in a lot of fighting with each other is they actually trick the females a little bit so if a female wanders into a male's territory, um, if she then tries to sort of wander off without wanting to breed with the male, uh, the male gives an alarm call. Um, not all of the time, but certainly seems to give these, these alarm calls more often and they're not true alarm calls. So they're false alarm calls. And it, what it does is makes the female stop um, and actually sort of turn back into the male's territory because you know, from her perspective, he's emitting an alarm call, and that might mean that there's a predator around. Uh, so it's safer for her to to come back. Um, and researchers have found that on these occasions, it does tend to lead to more matings for that male. Um, so it's a bit of a sneaky way uh, of getting getting a, a mating there. Um, one example that's truly fascinating is uh, involving mourning um, cuttlefish. So this is in Sydney Harbour. Uh, so cuttlefish, as you probably know, can change their, um, their colours and their patterns incredibly. I mean, really, really exquisitely. Um, and they, they do this in response to, to various things. Um, and what one study has found is that when these morning cuttlefish are sort of um, in the, you know, in the mating zone, sometimes there are three around sometimes it's you know just a male and a female and they're you know doing their thing sometimes there's a male displaying to a female and another male rocks up um, and when this happens uh, scientists have found that the the male that's displaying to the female actually kind of splits his display halfway down the body so um, he shows a female coloration towards the intruding male whereas he retains his male display towards the actual female. Mm. And the idea is that by um, pretending on the side of his body that this intruding male um, sees, by pretending that he's a female, that male won't actually come and challenge him for, for the real female. So um, it's quite a fascinating example there. So fascinating. All right, skipping ahead to chapter four now, the ass carrying the image. I wasn't uh, familiar with this fable, so I'm going to read it off for people. A man put a religious image on the back of his ass to take it to one of the temples in town. 
As they went along the road, all the people they met uncovered and bowed their heads out of reverence for the image. But the ass thought that they were doing it out of respect for himself and began to give himself airs accordingly. At last, he became so conceited that he imagined he could do as he liked. And by way of protest against the load he was carrying, he came to a full stop and flatly declined to proceed any further. His driver, finding him so obstinate, hit him hard and long with his stick, saying the while, Oh, you dunderheaded idiot. Do you suppose it's come to this that men pay worship to an ass? <laughs> Donkeys don't get much respect in fables or society, <laughs> but they used to be beloved and they are also incredible creatures. So what changed? Mm, yeah. So donkeys are widely portrayed. And yes, I could have chosen pretty much any Aesop's fable for this chapter. And I, I chose that one because of that final line, you know, it hasn't come to pass that men would worship a donkey um, because I just think that's so revealing of the way that we think about these animals. But yes, if we go back to the early days after donkeys were domesticated, um, they were thought of really highly. Uh, so I mentioned in the chapter, uh, there was this wonderful discovery at one of the, the tombs of the founder um, Egyptian kings and uh, it's going back millennia now. And most of the Egyptian kings are buried alongside high-ranking courtiers, or they're buried alongside um, more traditional symbols of power, like lions or, or big boats or, you know, something like that. But this particular king um, in the tombs nearby him, uh, there were donkeys, which I just think is quite incredible and, and clearly well looked after donkeys um, who'd been carefully laid into this tomb all facing the same way and, and all sort of prepared really nicely which definitely suggests that donkeys were valued and there was a reason that this king had donkeys you know accompanying him into the afterlife so and there's a good reason for that because donkeys really um you know revolutionized human history uh you know it's as, as kind of as clear as that in the way that they um you know carried heavy loads for for being beasts of burden um for helping people to disperse um you know to to pack up their things rather than being confined to one area they with the help of donkeys were able to travel and trade um and pretty much everything you know our, our, our evolutionary um kind of progress over that period and our development is thanks to donkeys so <laughs> it's part of the reason why i wanted to write this chapter because i just felt like we need to go deeper into what donkeys actually do um uh and try and uh, overcome this idea that they're just these little uh, inferior horses, you know, little horses with big ears, um, the kind of poor cousin to the horse. And I think it was really when horses became domesticated and made it to, um, you know, Northern Africa or uh, the Fertile Crescent where, where donkeys were being used so much the horses came in and suddenly people had this bigger more powerful faster animal which uh, 
you know, was more productive, um, was a, a more powerful status symbol, was better to use in war. Um, and I think that probably started the, the demise in perceptions for the donkey. We, you know, do need to remember that even today, hundreds of millions of people rely on the work that donkeys do. Um, so they are incredibly valuable animals. Horses are obviously also uh, very intriguing creatures. How do they communicate with other horses and can they communicate with us in a similar fashion? Mm, they are fascinating. And it's, it's this close relationship with humans, again, like for dogs, um, that seems to have led to, to some really fascinating abilities in the way that they communicate. So horses are herd animals. So, you know, the, the ancestor um, of domestic horses it would have been a herd animal which evolved on on the Eurasian steppes um, these great grassy plains uh, and so as herd animals they do communicate well with each other they you know they recognize others within their group um, they recognize the you know the, the noises um, that particular individuals within their group make as well um, you know they can do things like follow gaze direction of others other horses um to, to sort of see what they're looking at uh you know they make an interesting candidate for asking whether they have something like theory of mind which i already talked about whether you know in the seems like there's there's some evidence perhaps that that they might but what i'm really interested by is is yeah the the abilities that they have when it comes to interacting with people um and so there's lots of evidence that shows that they do uh, respond to things like, you know, not just where a person is looking, um, but what a person is doing, um, what kind of emotional state uh, a person is, is, is showing towards them when they respond differently. You know, they, um, they are more likely to approach someone who is smiling versus someone that has an angry face. Um, and they're more likely to, to approach people that, um, you know, not shouting. So, so they can pick up on some quite subtle um, human cues. Uh, and there are some, yeah, some lovely studies showing that they, that they also could communicate their preferences towards people too. Is this similar with donkeys? Mm. The, the problem is we don't really know. Mm. So, very, very few studies have been done on donkey behavior, which is probably, you know, again, reflective of the way that we perceive them. But they do have very different evolutionary histories. So, you know, as I said, horses are herd animals. There's a reason why they might have evolved these social cognitive abilities to be able to uh, communicate with others in their group or you know to know where they fit within a hierarchy donkeys aren't herd animals so they the way that they evolved because they evolved in Africa a very very different environment to Eurasia and, and big grassy plains they evolved to be more territorial and to be you know only in smaller groups or or solitary um, so while both have uh, very strong um, kind of human influences during their evolutionary history, 
both horses and donkeys have been domesticated to live alongside people. Horses maybe already had uh, a predisposition for these kind of social behaviors. Mm. The answer is we don't really know, but I mean, there's every reason why we might think that, that donkeys could respond to to human cues and to human emotional states. It's just we don't yet have the evidence on them. Chapter five is the fox and the crow. For those who are unfamiliar with the story, it goes like this. A fox once saw a crow fly off with a piece of cheese in its beak and settle on a branch of a tree. That's for me as I am a fox, the fox told himself as he walked up to the foot of the tree. Good day, Mistress Crow, he cried. How well you are looking today. How glossy your feathers, how bright your eye. I feel sure your voice must surpass that of other birds, just as your figure does. Let me hear but one song from you that I may greet you as the queen of birds. The crow lifted up her head and began to call her best. But the moment she opened her mouth, the piece of cheese fell to the ground, only to be snapped up by Mr. Fox, who told the crow, my good crow, your voice is right enough, but your wit is wanting. Why did wildlife biologist David Henry describe foxes as the cat-like canine? Mm. Well, they're very, very cat-like, it turns out. Um, obviously, foxes come from a completely different evolutionary group. They're part of the dog families. That's the, the Canidae, um, whereas cats are part of the cat family, the Felidae. Um, and foxes are quite unusual within their family um, in that they're solitary, uh, solitary hunters. Whereas, you know, wolves or um, dingoes um, or coyotes, you know, they might work together to, to hunt. Foxes hunt on very, very small prey. Um, rodents, basically, uh, they're specialized to, to hunt for these little animals so it doesn't make sense for them to be doing it in groups um so it seems that because of this uh, they've evolved to be sort of as cat-like as you could get within the confines of of being a dog um so they're more nocturnal than other dogs and that kind of ties in with when their prey are most active um they're incredibly lithe as predators, um, you know, silent predators really. And they they hunt through stealth, um, just like a cat. They can climb trees, um, again, like a cat, and their pupils are, are a bit different to the rest of um, the dog family. So um, they're, you know, slit-like, like cats as well, and that's an adaptation to that nocturnal hunting. So um, yeah, Henry kind of, I think it's a, a lovely description of the fox as being the cat-like one, the cat-like canine. And if I'm remembering correctly, their hearing is their best sense, much like cats versus most dogs who have that exceptional sense of smell too. Mm, they do seem to use hearing as their, um, their primary kind of hunting sense. Uh, and it's, it, there've been some surprising results, you know, um, as mammals uh, and, you know, like dogs we would think that foxes should be able to sniff out everything that you know is is around them um but some really nice experiments that were done by david mcdonald on one of his hand reared foxes showed that he could move a buried mouse 
just a meter away from when where his fox had originally buried it um and she wouldn't be able to find it so you know it seems that their smell is really not their primary um prey detection sense why are foxes fascinating subjects for a wild animal adapting to urban life mm. Well, they've adapted incredibly well to urban life. I think we can say that um, towns and cities are just a new part of their habitat now. Um, the red fox is, is an incredibly opportunistic animal and found pretty much you know, across the world. Um, so they're as at home in cities now as they would be in the tundra or as they would be on the edge of the desert or you know, in a in a woodland, um, towns and cities have, have become another part of their habitat. And what's I think really interesting is that urban foxes behave quite differently to rural foxes. Um, so it seems as if they've 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 really risen to the challenge of living alongside people. Um, and they've not just risen to it, they they're excelling at it. Um, they're one of the few animals that's doing really, really well out of people and, and out of being able to live alongside us. Uh, and, you know, we're seeing some, some really interesting adaptations already in foxes that have been living um, in cities. So in the UK, um, foxes have been living in cities for decades, uh, probably back, you know, certainly back to the 1930s when um, suburbia started to expand but probably a lot further back in in London um, and so forth and and we're now seeing changes in things like skull shape which uh, you know might indicate all sorts of things but um, you know that they're they're actually evolving to be better suited to living alongside people um, and they're far less scared than rural foxes as well so um you know it may be that we're we're almost selecting for a different type of fox that lives alongside us in the cities hmm. chapter six is the lion and the shepherd a lion roaming through a forest trod upon a thorn soon after he came up to a shepherd and fawned upon him wagging his tail as if to say i am a suppliant and i seek your aid the shepherd boldly examined the beast discovered the thorn and placing his paw upon his lap, pulled it out. Thus relieved of his pain, the lion returned into the forest. Sometime later, the shepherd, being imprisoned on a false accusation, was condemned to be cast to the lions as the punishment for his imputed crime. But when the lion was released from his cage, he recognized the shepherd as the man who healed him, and instead of attacking him, approached and placed his foot upon his lap. The king, as soon as he heard the tale, ordered the lion to be set free again in the forest, and the shepherd to be pardoned and restored to his friends. Aesop uses the lion a lot. What are some of the biggest differences between big and small cats, Joe? Oh, okay. So obviously size is one difference. Um, <laughs> but, but, it's not always, not, but not always, though. Not always, no. Um, so it seems to come down to vocal anatomy, in that big cats can roar and those that are not part of the big cats um, cannot uh, and, and small cats um, uh, are capable of, of purring um, but it's I think it's it, it's mainly the the roaring is the big difference between the big and the, 
the small cats, not, yeah, I think there needs to be different names for, for, the, for the groups really. Yeah, that blew my mind. I mean, it uh, turned my reality upside down that not all big cats are big cats and not all small cats are small cats. Now, lions live in groups. Is this normal for felids? No, no, it's not. Um, it's, it's very unusual, actually, across the felid group. Um, most of them are solitary. Well, all of them are solitary, but lions are not just different, but, you know, spectacularly different in um, kind of how important that group living is to them. Um, so they live in prides uh, that can range between, I don't know, a couple of individuals up to 15 to 20 or, or more, depending on the habitat that they live in. Um, and that's really, it's central. Um, the pride is really the central part of, of lion life. Is the lion's mane an evolutionary defense against attacks from rival lions or is something different at play with that hair? Mm. So this idea goes back to, to Darwin's time really. And he um, hypothesized that yes, the mane had probably evolved to protect this, you know, very vulnerable area of the throat um, from attack by other males. But Darwin had obviously never actually done research on lions. Um, this was just his his kind of idea, and and yet the idea stood um, up until I think the 60s or 70s when uh, George Shala was was working on lions in the Serengeti, um, and he proposed that actually it might not be done it might not be a protection thing it might be a signal um, and specifically a, a sexually selected signal so that's something that is conveying information um, to either other males or to to females about his quality uh, and so this was tested it was a lovely experiment which involved um, full life-size stuffed stuffed toys really lion um stuffed toys which uh was sourced i think from a dutch toy company um, and shipped over and and they were identical but for their manes so one one toy had a very short blonde mane one had a long blonde mane one had a short dark mane and one had a long dark mane and um the researchers put these out and observed how both males and females responded to each of these different lions. Um, and they found that females overwhelmingly preferred males with uh, a long dark mane, um, but also that males were less likely to approach a male with this kind of mane as well. So it seems that like the lowest pecking order was the short blonde mane um, and then the, the most attractive and also potentially scariest for other males was the one with the, the long dark mane. So it seems that um, manes actually signal something about both a male's ability to fight, which is why uh, it was affecting how other males were, were responding to it, um, but also that it signals to females something about his genetic quality. So, you know, I'm going to be, a, you know, your offspring will have these great genes um you can tell that because i've got this big bushy uh costly is is the key thing it's a costly mane because it makes the lions overheat as well um so only males that are genetically high quality are able to sport these big uh you know fluffy um dark manes uh, and that's the idea behind that as a sexually selected signal
Well, I guess that explains part of the sex appeal, the 1980s rock and roll lead singer then, huh? <laughs> yeah, I don't know how it works with um, overheating and uh, rock and roll singers. I'm not <laughs> sure if it's the same. <laughs> now, uh, research has found that lions aren't great at reciprocity, but vampire bats and rats are. How so? Mm -hmm. mm. Yeah, so in lions, even though they're exceptionally cooperative, uh, for females, this comes down to relatedness. They live in groups of, fem of um, you know, related females, their daughters or uh, sisters. Um, and males, oftentimes it'll be brothers that are in the little coalition groups, um, but they might be unrelated. And yet it, it's not reciprocity. They, they work together because it's mutually um, beneficial for them to both do so. Uh, vampire bats, uh, they really provide one of the, the earliest examples of reciprocity. And it's quite incredible that it's, it was found in, you know, these little bats uh, that go out um, and overnight they, they need to eat, they have to eat blood. That's, you know, that's why they're vampire bats. Um, they go out and they suck blood from cattle uh, or other livestock. Um, and not very much, you know, it's, they're, they're quite small, so it's not as scary as perhaps it, it sounds like. But because they're quite small, they, they have to basically feed um, quite frequently. And if a vampire bat fails to find food uh, for three nights in a row, it's pretty much game over for the bat. So um, what the, the, the scientist who was studying them at the time found is that for bats that had failed to feed if they were begging to another that other bat who who had fed would actually regurgitate um, congealed blood for the hungry bat and for many of the cases it was a mother and and um, her offspring but not all of them so some of them were unrelated bats and that's where reciprocity comes in so uh, because you know it's costly to be helping another that isn't related to you. you you can see in the animal world why it might happen um, for animals that are related because your your genes are still going to be helped by you helping that individual but for unrelated animals that's kind of where the big question has come in around reciprocity um, so that was found in bats and yes more kind of recent work has found similar things in rats as well um, in that they form kind of, I will say friendships in uh, inverted commas, um, because it's not the same as a, as a human friendship. Um, uh, or they've, they've formed just relationships with other animals, um, other members of their group. And if that other animal is in need, um, then one of the rats will go out of its way to help it and it will be reciprocated. Um, over time as well so yeah we don't see this in lions but perhaps less likely contenders um, in the bats and, and the rats and potentially in a much broader um, range of, of animal species too. Chapter eight is the ant and the grasshopper. The ants were spending a fine winter's day drying grain collected in the summertime. A grasshopper perishing with famine passed by and earnestly begged for a little food. The ants inquired of him why did you not stock up food during the summer? The grasshopper replied, I needed leisure time, so I passed the days in singing. The ants then said in derision, if you were foolish enough to sing all the summer, you must dance supperless to bed in the winter. 
that's very ominous but wow what a great last line there Gosh, yeah. now you actually yes it is now you actually ran an experiment on crows to see how well they could plan out future behavior considering just how brilliant problem solvers these creatures are what did you learn Mm. So I was interested in uh, whether or not the crows, so I was working on New Caledonian crows. These are crows which naturally um, and routinely use tools to probe out larvae. So um, they use sticks uh, to, to hook larvae and other grubs out of dead wood and, and crevices. And I wanted to ask whether they could plan out sequences of tool using behavior. So for example, if the tool that was in range you know the one that they could pick up wasn't actually long enough to retrieve food would they be able to use a tool to to retrieve another tool which is something that you know they'd never do um, in the wild uh, and I found that they they could they could plan out sequences of um, tools up to you know even three tools in sequence uh, in order to get the food um, this doesn't tell us a lot about their their future planning behavior because all of this um, was was very much centered in the present so there was a food reward present and they behaved um, with this kind of food reward there in mind so the ant and the grasshopper fable is a bit different because the ants are um, storing food for a later point in their lives they're not they're not storing the food because they're hungry right now or because of any kind of current motivational state um, uh, the fable suggests that they were doing it because they were thinking ahead to when uh, uh, conditions would change and they wouldn't be able to get food and, and they were um, yeah thinking about these conditions and uh, behaving appropriately so that they'd have that food there so the crow experiment doesn't really tell us that much about what the crows were doing further ahead in the future. So this is one of those fables that seems like it's pretty true, in part because grasshoppers, their lifespans is really only about a year. They are typically mm. born in the winter and they die at some point next winter. And ants always seem to be working towards some greater good. And they're such a fascinating species. You point out that the Argentine ant is part of a large super colony that spans from Mexico and the Western United States to Europe, Australia, New Zealand, Hawaii, and Japan. This creature has such freakish abilities that you could take one of these ants from Mexico and drop it into the Japanese colony and it sinks up immediately. But if you drop it into another colony, it will die if not be murdered soon after. How is this possible, Joe? So, yeah. It's staggering, um, the Argentine ants, although they're exceptionally invasive uh, as well in many places and a, and a really big pest. Um, but it comes down to uh, the chemicals which um, on the kind of cuticle of the ant, so uh, hydrocarbons and the, the particular chemical signature associated with each colony. So an ant, um, ants from the same colony will all have the same signature uh, so they are recognized by workers moving around, you know, they, they might be able to just sort of test the individuals that they, they come across and find they're from the same, the same group. But if, you know, a member of, so that's why if you take one ant from the large super colony uh, in the US and drop it into the colony in Japan, they're the same. 
so they're not going to be um, marked out as being an intruder but you could take an ant from this super colony uh, and put it into the space of another colony uh, and because its chemical signature is different um, the other ants would destroy it basically mm. <laughs> wow uh, what is the Madagascar Dracula ant and why is it so uh, fascinating? Oh, well, there are certain ants which, um, yeah, <laughs> kind of use their own offspring um, for, for sustenance or use um, other members of their colony uh, for sustenance. And so the Madagascar Dracula ants have sort of taken this to extremes. Um, uh, so adults will actually feed on the, um, the hemolymph. So that's kind of the insect equivalent of blood. Uh, they don't have blood like us. They have this, this hemolymph. Um, uh, and by kind of chewing into the, the, the larvae, um, they're able to sort of feed on this, <laughs> on this stuff from their unborn children, which, um, sounds awful, but, um, they don't do enough that it would be fatal. You know, they're, they're not killing them. They're just using some of their insect blood to survive, which. <laughs> it's like a, uh, a, it's like a quasi cannibalism, but you can't totally fault them, I guess, because these babies don't die. Right. Yeah. So um, if it's, it's, it's an extreme, uh, and very bizarre adaptation, but it seems to be working for them. Ant highways are fascinating to watch, Joe. So I can imagine that they're a lot of fun to study too. Can us humans take any traffic tips from research on ant highways? We we could, um, and we probably should, um, given <laughs> the state of traffic uh, uh, on the roads at the moment. But we won't, of course. Um, so ants are really, really good at arranging themselves spatially and at traveling between places and at avoiding collisions. Uh, uh, they organize themselves and, and experiments have been done where ants are, you know, manipulated into going over bridges of different widths. And so obviously the narrower the bridge, the more chance there is of there being a collision. Um, and what they found is that at a particular density, uh, the ants just start to move a bit more slowly. So um, this reduces the, the number of collisions that they have uh, or the, you know, the, the time it might take to actually reorganize after a collision. They just kind of reduce their speed, um, which seems very obvious. And, and it means that they are able to move between their, their colony or their, their kind of uh, the feeding sites um, really efficiently. And that's a hallmark of ant colonies. You know, they follow these very simple rules um, to maximize efficiency of the colony. But humans, we, we act for our own, um, uh, you know, to further our, our own progress. And, and I don't mean that in a bad way, in, in, in a very selfish way. It's just ants have a very different, form of, of relatedness to to us um they're hyper social uh whereas we are we are behaving you know for maximizing our own 
welfare um, or that of our relatives or, or our friends. So when we're out on the roads, we're not really thinking about the good of everyone else moving along. Or I feel like there, there's some place that this knowledge could come into play. It's maybe with automated vehicles and how they operate around other automated vehicles, maybe even human-driven mm. vehicles too. Yeah, and I'm sure, I, I don't know the answer to this actually because I've not looked into it, but I'm sure that uh, people that are working on developing these kind of rules will probably have been looking to um, things like ants or or other animals um, for inspiration as to how that they how they do it. All right, chapter nine is the tortoise and the hare, or the hare and the tortoise, as it were. I'm not going, going to rehash this story for anybody listening right now. If you don't know this story, well, that's on you. In 2018, a team of mechanical engineers published a paper titled The Fastest Animals and Vehicles Are Neither the Biggest Nor the Fastest Over a Lifetime. What was their point? Oh, so they were looking at um, both airplanes and animals, which is not a combination that's often um, considered <laughs> together. But the point was that if you take something like um, a domestic carrier jet or something big a, a big plane which is active kind of all the time but maybe doesn't go as fast you know that maybe doesn't maximize its speed um and you compare that with something like a fighter jet which is smaller um goes much much faster but maybe is not active all of the time it might you know it's only brought out occasionally then they were saying that like if you look over the entire lifetime um then it'll be the slower one that ultimately moves the fastest so they were kind of making the point that with the tortoise and the hare um because of the very different activity patterns then it might well be the case that over its lifetime the tortoise um has gone the fastest because it's moving all the time uh if that was the case versus the hare which potentially might be having bursts of speed but um maybe being sedentary for for the rest of the time so that was kind of the point of of that paper i think and people are just going to have to pick up the book to find out more about the science behind the tortoise and the hare. Joe, in the epilogue, you write that you hope to have passed on some of your fascination with animal behavior and that the reader might go away from this book relaying a fact that resonated with them or someone else. There are a bunch of examples like that in this book. So congratulations on that. And thank you for the time today. Really enjoyed Aesop's Animals, the science behind the fables. And I think a lot of other folks out there have and will do. Oh, thank you very much. It's been an absolute pleasure.